and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy, as usual, with me this evening. How are you doing, Darcy? I'm doing okay. How about you? Pretty good. Can't complain. We are here to talk about some crazy cases tonight. Provocative, weird, wild, and bizarre stuff is what this podcast is all about. What's going on in your life lately, Darcy? Anything oh my new? gosh, school, school, and more school. Um, just trying to get through life. I'm trying to stay above water. This is my last semester before I take like comprehensive exams, and so I'm just trying to get through it, and then I can breathe again and maybe sleep. That'll be nice. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got... Um, A lot going on in my life as well. Uh, The podcast is exploding at the moment. I just want to thank the listeners for supporting us and really like putting the word out there about it. Our feed has just like gone crazy over the last couple of weeks. And our numbers are double what they were last month and they continue to grow as the podcast grows as well. And so we just want to thank the listeners who have supported us and really shown us that they like the content that we're providing. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. I do have some emails to share at the end of the episode as well. Cool. So that'll be a neat little surprise. Um, I actually want to start it off with this interesting article that I saw. I know that a few months back we did an episode about a kidnapped girl that was held in the cellar for years and years and years. Oh, We've yeah. done a couple about young people that have been kidnapped and held in captivity for years. But there was an article that came out this week um, it's called Dutch Family Found in Cellar Waiting for End of Time. I don't know if you saw this. this it came out on the 15th. This story is banana this is sandwich. Whack. <laughs> Jan Hennup wrote the article. It came out on a- AFP. Uh, the Dutch police found a father and six adult children hidden in the basement of a remote farmhouse where they had reportedly spent years waiting for the end of time. They discovered this man who was believed to be the father of the family and his children who were between the ages of 18 and 25 in the northern province of Drenthe. Sure. So local media said the family was found after one of the sons went to a nearby pub in a confused state, drank five beers, and then asked for help. (laughs) He hadn't been outside in nine years. Bonkers. So, like... This is the thing. I don't want to make light of this situation because it's so crazy. But, like, did he sit down, order a beer, drink it, like, in a social manner to where it's taking him, you know, 10 minutes-ish, if not more, to drink a beer, order another beer? Or did he just sit down and say, I want five beers, line them up? Chugged them and then was like, oh, my God, I haven't been outside in nine years. Guys, guys, (laughs) I have to tell you something. Was he just confused and disoriented? He sat down, ordered a beer, and didn't know what he wanted to say and was, like, gathering his thoughts, and then and he then needed, needed another one? More? Yeah, I, that's what it sounds like. Five beers is so many beers and so much time before you say anything. Right? But apparently, did you see the article that said he had apparently, like, gone to this pub a couple times before? Okay, so let me finish a little bit okay. of this article and see, okay. you know, what else you may have heard on this, but... Police arrested a 58-year-old man at the scene for failing to cooperate with the investigation. Presumably that was not the father. The captor? Yeah, it says he was not the father. Yeah. So 
evidently the local mayor was like, wow, I have never heard anything like this before. This is so crazy. Police investigated after receiving a tip off from somebody who was concerned about the people's living conditions and had discovered the adults. So they lived sort of this isolated lifestyle and had been living at this homestead for about nine years. Several of the children had not been taken up in the birthing register or officially registered. So they had been home births and they had no birth certificates or record of those children even existing. Police are investigating all the scenarios. The family, meanwhile, has been taken to a nearby holiday park while the investigation continues. I'm assuming that is some sort of a um, safe spot for them to be kept while they're continuing. But this family lived in the basement and had been there for years waiting for, quote-unquote, the end of times. Some of those freed had no idea that other people even existed. Oh, my God. This is like, that's that's the beginning of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Right? (laughs) So the police were alerted after a man around 25 who was believed to be the family's oldest son walked into a village bar. He was disheveled, unwashed, and wearing old clothes and told them he hadn't been outside for about nine years. My God. He'd he'd never been to school and seemed very confused. He spoke in a very childish way. I wonder how he even knew what beer was. Did they have beer Maybe they were fermenting in, the, in their basement. I mean, they're waiting for the end of the world. You got to think they have like canned goods and, you know. I hope, but this young man Potable ran away from water. home and said he urgently needed help. So they phoned the police and upon <laughs> investigation, police discovered a hidden staircase behind a cupboard leading to a cellar where a man said to be the family's father and five others, his children presumably, were hiding. How urgently did he need help if he drank five beers? Uh, evidently not that urgent. Yeah. Um, aerial photos showed a remote farmhouse surrounded by fields. It looked pretty chill, pretty bucolic. Yeah. I, I don't really know what the deal is with here, but the family had no contact with the outside world and were completely self-reliant with a vegetable garden and a goat. A goat. How, however, <laughs> the father had a stroke a few years ago and was lying in bed and there were no signs of his wife. Neighbors Uh-oh. told the station they did not know the family, and they only knew that one man lived on the premise. Police declined to give further details, and all scenarios are being investigated at this point. But this is some crazy shit. So you say that you read that he had been to this pub before? Yeah, I had read an article that said that he had gone there like three times before. That people had seen him there like three times before. Before he like said recently. Anything. Yeah. Well, I, I that I don't know. I don't know how recently he. But I. It's that's what it seemed like. Yeah. That's a little crazy, isn't it? Like, can, can you imagine? Think of the, all of the things that have happened since 2010. For real. Like, how many new iPhones we have? <laughs> like, <laughs> the, well, like, the fact that he was able to keep adult children in a isolated space and tell them that no one else existed and none of them actually escaped... None right. of them tried to get out. Like, well, that, there has to be some so kind of abuse that, you, like, you, that you would be. They would be so accepting or defeated to not try to escape. They have to know and that that's not normal, unless he told them there was like an Armageddon outside. And how would they? Oh, just it's so crazy. And then this this kid actually knows what beer is, so it couldn't right. be that bad. Like he had to have had it at some point. It's well. So if he's twenty five, he would have gone in when he was sixteen. So he probably had at least heard of beer. I don't know what the drinking age is over there, but maybe he had heard of beer, had a beer, 
you know, and before what, what brought they him there to as opposed to the neighbor's house to knock on the door and ask him to call 911. You know what I mean? Why go to a, it just seems crazy. And because he a needed bit like, five beers, a little bit strange. And the storyline just kind of makes me very suspicious. The neighbors don't have five beers. Maybe if he was just like, shit, I need a beer. Get you know, me a beer. Auburn was the football national football champion in 2010. So like. You know, maybe that's not so bad, but if that's the last thing he knew. But I doubt he watched college football. That's just crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, I know that in the last episode that we posted, we discussed sort of a plan of talking about cases from our hometowns. And this evening, I have another case from Washington State. This is an area that is not too extremely far from where I grew up. Um, This is the case of Mandy Stavick or Amanda Stavick. I I don't think you've ever heard this one, Darcy, so this should be okay. a, an eye-opening experience for you. This A lot of the information from this came from 2020. The episode there initially aired September 20th, and the episode was called 30 Years Searching, and it's the story of Mandy Stavick. Wow. This whole case happened in the late 80s, 1989 to be exact, in Washington State, in a rural community right outside of Bellingham where Mandy lived. This is crazy, though, because the town's name is Acme. Nice. Like in the cartoons? Acme. Like in the (laughs) cartoons. I didn't know there was such a thing. I'd never heard of that particular town, even having been from an area that's very close to there. But it is a tiny town in Whatcom County, very, very rural. It's down Highway 9. Whatcom County is the most northern northwestern county in Washington state. It is extremely beautiful, but really isolated and rural. It's about 15 miles east of Bellingham, which is the largest city in the county. This particular town and Bellingham in particular as well is surrounded by mountains. There's a lot of cows, trees. It's very quiet and peaceful. There's very little crime. People didn't, at this particular time in general, people didn't lock their doors. They left their key in the car ignition. It was just considered to be a town that was safe. And I think about it and I wouldn't say that we necessarily left our keys in our car ignition, but we never locked our doors. I mean, there was never a sense that crime was something that could happen where we were. We just felt safe. And definitely that's, I'm sure, what the people in this small town felt as well. Mandy's house was at the end of a dead-end street about a mile from the highway at the end of a long driveway in a very quiet neighborhood. There they lived. She lived, most of the lots in this particular area were 10 to 25 acres. The neighbors were all very nice. Yeah, they're they're larger lots. And everyone knows everyone else in these sorts Mm -hmm. of towns and communities. Generations have owned the same plots of land for years. It's kind of a small town life. Nothing bad happens here because everyone knows everyone mm-hmm. else. Mandy Stavick had just graduated from high school. She went to Mount Baker High School, and she was in her first year of college at Central Washington University, which is one of the more popular places to go to school for some of those Washington State folks in that area. Oh, interesting. She had just come home from Thanksgiving break from school was just spending a little time with her family, was enjoying her first quarter at college, and it just seemed everything was going very well for her. 
She was doing well in school. She had always been popular. She was a cheerleader. She was in softball, track, basketball. She was 18 years old. Everyone liked her. She was athletic. She was in the band. She could jump on a horse bareback. She was just this vivacious and independent chick who was just totally amazing. And everyone liked her. And the people that knew her were just thought she was amazing. And, you know, her mom and her family told stories about her. You know, they borrowed some cows from the neighbors to keep their fields trimmed. And at two years old, Mandy slid under the electric fence and was in this field with a bunch of bulls and was just completely fearless. Wasn't afraid of anything. And luckily, the mom grabbed her before she went up to the bulls. But she just she had no fears. And that's just what she was like. Bulls. I thought you said bulls, like the small little rodent. (laughs) No, bulls, like big (laughs) ass, you know, ton, big ton bulls, like real crazy wild animals. And she, you know, had no fear of them. She walked right up to them like it was nothing. It's just the sort of person that she was. But the day after Thanksgiving, when everyone was just chilling and relaxed, you know how that that day is after you forge yourself and you're just chilling or whatever. But Mandy decides that she's going to go out and take a run. And this is 1989, and it's a late afternoon, and she's got this route that she's taken for many years up until that point. She was an avid runner. It's about a five-mile loop in her neighborhood near her house down Strand Road to the Nooksack River and back. If you live in this area or you've ever been to this area, you know that those kinds of runs are really common. I used to take them when I was growing up. And it's, it's beautiful. You're out there. It's so peaceful. You just, it, it's an amazing place to go running. And if you're not a runner, it makes you want to be a runner because it's so gorgeous out there. But she didn't go by herself. She took her dog, Kyra. It was a German shepherd. So she, and she had this, this dog with her and it was an older dog, but it was still protective of Mandy. And Mary actually usually rode with her daughter on a bike while Mandy ran and the dog usually came as well. But on that particular day, Mary's sister was in town and at the house. So she declined to go with her daughter and just said, go ahead. You know, she'd been on that run hundreds of times before, presumably, and never had any issues. And it's such a quiet and peaceful neighborhood and it's not dark or anything. There's no sidewalk, though, in the area that she was running. Mm-hmm. And there's about 10 to 12 houses along the way and people you know, saw her out running. So it wasn't as though it's that isolated. Mandy had turned around and was headed back home. She was seen by neighbors and her brother Lee when she was about halfway home. Her brother was hanging out with some of the neighbors just relaxing on the day after Thanksgiving and saw his sister run by. It was about a quarter of a mile from home at that point. And so, you know, no one had any cause to believe that anything was wrong, but Mandy never showed up and the dog came back without her about two hours after she left. Oh, no. So as crazy as that sounds, people didn't really start to panic until the dog showed back up. And then her mother's like, okay, something is seriously not right because number one, the dog would never have left Mandy it was yeah. very protective. And number two... German Shepherds are like super been, loyal. It's been two hours. Like, Mandy wouldn't right. just disappear and not show up. Yeah. Um, so they, they called her boyfriend, who was no longer her boyfriend at that time, but he had driven her home from school, and they were still on good terms. There was no reason to believe that the boyfriend had anything necessarily to do with the disappearance. But as you know, they suspect everyone that's 
close to a particular person that goes missing. And so he was sort of on that sus- that short suspect mm-hmm. list for a brief period of time until they were able to um, take him off the list. But the police moved on this right away. And typically, as you probably know, there many police departments will not let you file a missing persons report until after a certain amount of time has gone by because they're right. an adult right. and presumed to you know be able to do whatever the hell they want to do. But in this instance, she had no history of running away. There was no reason that she should have run away, and they suspected foul play when the dog came back to the house by itself. And they knew she would never run away. So they check out the boyfriend and friends and anyone in her area, and they canvassed everything, and people just immediately started looking for her because they were like, hey, you know, maybe she twisted her ankle and she's alongside of the road somewhere. Maybe she's hurt. Maybe she got hit by a car. Like, maybe she's somewhere and needs help. She was wearing a light-colored sweatshirt, a teal-colored pair of sweats, and light blue shoes with purple stripes, as well as a, tradi- a very traditional Walkman. You know, you've seen the yellow mm-hmm. ones. She had her Walkman with her, which means she was running with headphones and she probably couldn't hear extremely well. Right. Which is frightening. Yeah, we've talked about that before. And Como News 4 covered this news story quite extensively, as well as the other news stations in the area. If you are from that area, you know most of the newscasters on that station. Gene Anderson. Um, she was one of my faves. I heard her do a spiel on it. I actually listened to some actual footage from the TV show. And, but every radio station, every TV station, newspapers in that area were covering this, like, were on it. They yeah. had, everyone wanted a piece of that and were running articles about this. Mandy's mother was a school bus driver for the Mount Baker School District, so people knew her as well, and they knew this family and were like, we need to help her find her daughter, Mandy's family was initially from Alaska, and Mary had come down with her three kids, Mandy, Molly, and Lee, and settled into the town of Acme after a divorce. But they this wasn't the first sort of bad situation they've had in their family. They actually had, there was an older son that was killed in Alaska. Oh, gosh. And under really interesting circumstances as well, they had lived near Anchorage by Fort Richardson, and the boy's name was Brent, and he had permission to hunt on the base, official permission, and he had gone out there hunting, and then one day somebody shot him. Oh, no. He was found on this base with 17 shots in his back. 22 shells, and the murder has never been solved. It is to this day an unsolved murder, and they have never found the person that killed Brent. Whoa. So essentially Mary, Mandy's mother, thought, you know, we've been through this tragedy before, and I I don't know how much of this I can handle. This is terrible. We've got to find her. So the boyfriend was brought back in for questioning. His name was Rick Zender. They had broken up multiple times, but they checked his alibi and everything came out clear with him. Police spoke to him. He gave statements willingly and helped police look on side roads and all that for her and was very, very helpful, offered whatever assistance he could give. So day two, they still have not found Mandy, but they found a pair of sweatpants on a side road. Mm. Searchers found this and... They believe that these were the sweatpants that Mandy had been wearing when she disappeared. And But her mother 
was they noticed that the pants were kind of torn up and dirty and they had semen stains on them as well. Mm-hmm. And Mandy's mother was just like, there's no way she, these are hers. She would never have worn something dirty and torn up, but presumably this had happened during the course of some sort of a struggle. Right. But the whole town at that point was just combing the wilderness and the waterways and the roads with horses, boats, jeeps, motorcycles, bloodhounds. And they even brought in a bunch of field trackers, which are just people who are specially trained to look for leaves and branches and things that have been disturbed to -hmm. look for possible signs that somebody had been through there. And they just could not find any evidence on the road of any sort of struggle. So they thought that perhaps this was somebody that she knew. And a tracker asked to see Mandy's dog and looked at her and the dog cowered and just didn't do what it was normally doing. So they actually believed that the dog had been kicked or hit or something by the abductor to get it away from Mandy. Whoa. But... With the time and the fact that people had seen her out jogging, they were able to pinpoint a pretty precise timeline of when she probably disappeared. Okay. And this was the second day where they found the sweatpants. So they were starting to be like, okay, we're getting close. We know she's got to be around here somewhere. Even though the mom didn't believe they were Mandy's, the police were like, okay, we've, we've found the fibers on here. We've got some semen. We are, we need to get to work on this immediately. And granted this time period back in 89, the whole DNA thing was in its very first stages, infancy. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, extensively something that was used. So they were sort of researching it, but at the same time, weren't really sure how it was going to play into it. But people in this area as well were super freaked out. The the young ladies that lived in this area were really afraid because like they hadn't found, they had no clue who this was and, and they thought it could be anybody. And the FBI, FBI got involved. They called the FBI in to help assist with this case. And they pr- presented a profile as well that said that it was most likely somebody within the neighborhood, somebody oh, that was no. local. Because there was some speculation at certain points within this case that the Green River killer might potentially oh. be at play here. Um, but then they ruled that out because of the particular case, even though Mandy fit into, they found her on a waterway and she fit into the the profile of the white women that the Green River Killer was pulling in, but she was a college student and, and there were a number of other things that sort of drew that apart. But day three, there are searchers searching the Nooksack River by boat and they found something that looked a little strange and it ended up being Mandy <gasps> floating in the water. Oh, no. She was kind of drifting and had been caught on a branch. They found her at a south fork in the Nooksack River, about five and a half miles, five and a half to six miles from home on the east side of the river. There was a bend in the river, and she was sort of hung up floating face down in debris Mm. in the water. The area where she was located was not deep. Had she stood up, she could have walked out of the water and, and onto the bank. So obviously that means she was, she was killed na- before they put her in the water. Mm, no. Oh. She, one second here. Oh, okay. She was found naked except for her socks and shoes. Her Walkman and her clothes were gone. 
There were no obvious signs of trauma except some scratches, some very light scratches that looked like they had been sort of blackberry bush scratches. I don't know if you've ever been scratched by blackberry uh-uh. bushes. It's they're kind of small and and light okay. in nature, not super deep, very superficial. So like a sticker bush. The temp Yeah. Okay. So she had some scratches from that sort of a thing. The temperature of the water though during that time of the year, I don't know if you've ever been up to Washington State, but it gets pretty chilly there. Yeah. But the temperature was so cold in that water that it basically preserved her body so well that she looked like she was just sleeping even though she'd been dead for a couple of days she had this very she's just a a very pretty girl blonde curly hair big brown eyes petite just a a very attractive young lady and they they said that she just looked like she was sleeping Mm. and kathy gerdson which is a familiar face for those of you who are from washington state i believe she still works for the station but she reported on the case and and reported that, that they found the body they conducted the autopsy right away and determined that the cause of death was asphyxia by drowning oh oh my god yeah so interesting right yeah What's even more interesting is the fact that the water was so shallow in that area. Mandy was an extremely strong swimmer. She had been a lifeguard, and the water that they found mm. her in was super shallow, so she could have stood up and walked out at any point. So she must have been unconscious when she was knocked into the water or dropped into the right. water. And there were no, no signs of struggle. Oh, wow. So they were like, okay, what the heck is going on here? They found one injury, though, on the top part of her head. Mm. It was about three and a half, three inches by about two inches. Mm-hmm. Possibly she had been knocked out, mm. they say, because it was she'd been hit with a blunt object in the head. But that was not the cause of death or even a contributing factor necessarily, unless she had been knocked unconscious by that blow and then drowned because she was unconscious, obviously. But the water had washed away most of the evidence. Huh. She's completely nude, right? Yeah. And, they, they, except for they checked underneath her nails and there was material as well as there was, she had been sexually assaulted according to the medical examiner. Right. Now they did take a DNA sample from that and linked it also to the semen that was found on the sweats that they found. But at that time, as I mentioned earlier, DNA evidence was not super popular. It was in its infancy, not typical. And many counties did not actually collect DNA samples from bodies mm-hmm. that they found. But in this instance, fortunately, investigators were on their shit and they collected it for future use, collected and preserved it. Yeah. Wow. In fact, some of the investigators that were working on this case had just returned from the FBI training about DNA. Wow. That was fortunate. And they were learning. Yeah. Right. And they were learning about how important it was. And and one guy in particular was just extremely fascinated by it. And he was the one that reached out to the FBI for help and obtained a profile from them to compare and to sort of help the neighborhood figure out who this person was. But again, during that time period, 89, there was no CODIS. Mm -hmm. CODIS wasn't even, CODIS was probably an idea back then. It Sort of a pilot for CODIS started in 1990 and went out to 14 different states. But that particular program, the DNA database across the nation, was not officially implemented until 1998. Yeah. And this body was found in 1989. So there was a while before it would develop enough to be able to be very useful in this. And the process was extremely slow back then. However, tips were coming in like crazy. And including people who believe that the Green River Killer was the culprit in this. Yeah. But I believe that they just, there wasn't a strong enough link 
for them to put the two and two together and, and say that the Green River Killer was the culprit here. Right. In the meantime, they don't really have any strong leads on this. There is a memorial that they held at, hold at Mount Baker High School for Mandy, and over a 1,000 people show up to say goodbye to her. She is buried up the street from her home in a cemetery that's nearby. Mm. And at that point, a criminal investigation has been launched, and the, they're holding the clues in very tightly to the vest because they want to ensure that they're not going to cause whoever did this to take off and hide indefinitely. Sure. So they get a task force. They, they actually met up with the Green River Task Force and sort of compared notes. And it came out that, that they ruled that out conclusively. In the meantime, Mary is Mandy's mom, obviously, is mm-hmm. doing a lot of interviews. She's trying to keep that story in the news. The Crime Stoppers are offering a $1,000 reward. There's a tip line. They basically ran any and everyone down that came through that tip line and, and explored every option. The FBI profile, as I mentioned earlier, projected that this was somebody in the community. Mm-hmm. Somebody knew Mandy. This was not a stranger. And they had multiple people through the years that they explored. One was Paul Malik. He was a neighbor. He was one of the last people to see Mandy alive. He was one of the early suspects. He saw her as he was backing out of the driveway, claimed that he saw a dark pickup truck, but couldn't really give any more details. Mm. And he was questioned and came out a little bit sketchy. And they thought maybe he was the one, one of those types of people that wanted to be involved, mm-hmm. wanted to involve themselves in the in, in the crime story, and wanted attention, mm-hmm. so to speak. And but they asked for. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, and they always look at the last person to see them alive. Like that's always going to be a top yeah. person on the on the list. And they asked this gentleman as well for a DNA sample. And he was like, hell no. Hmm. And they eventually ended up getting a court order for him, and he was excluded after the DNA did not match up. Hmm. In the meantime, this case basically goes cold. About 30 years passes where they have no strong leads. New detectives kept coming and going, and... As new members of the department in Whatcom County, they were considered fresh eyes, so they would open this case whenever they got new folks in there and have them read the case file and see if maybe they could see something that hadn't been discovered before. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mandy was an all-American girl. Everyone knew her, and this was one of the biggest cases in the history of Whatcom County. The reports themselves were between 3,000 and 4,000 pages, and every oh few gosh. years they would do more interviews and and get reports into the paper to keep this active and to keep it in the public eye. Then a new detective, Brawny, comes onto the case. And he actually is a a native, a local guy who had gone to the same high school. And he decides that they need to do a DNA sweep. And he got that because he had heard of a certain case in England where they'd done the same thing. There was a murder that happened, and the police in a particular area decided that they were going to test every man in the appropriate age group and get DNA samples from everyone that could potentially be a suspect. And they would go and and ask for voluntary collection of samples of everyone in that area. Wow. And that's what they did. They went door-to-door collecting DNA samples. They did a little cheek swab for everybody within Mandy's area in a certain age group. They took 
looked at records and went all the way back to 1989 to see who lived anywhere near there, and they got a cheek swab from everybody Mm. to try to match against the DNA found on Mandy's body. There were about 100 suspects that they were looking at with that DNA sample on those, and they were sending them in in small batches Mm -hmm. and comparing dozens and dozens against the DNA, and no one came up. No one came up as a match. Then people are kind of reminded of this case and some women in the area are starting to look at Tim Bass. He was a neighbor of Mandy's back in 1989, lived a few houses down from her, and she ran by his house every day. He graduated in 1986 from the same high school. She did not go to school with him. She had no, Mandy had no idea, and Mandy's friends really didn't know who this guy was, but they did know his younger brother, Tom. But they start looking at this Tim guy. He was a loner, kind of an oddball. He lived with his mom and dad and brother near Mandy, and everyone said he was sort of this awkward dude. And when they looked back at his history, they saw that he moved away from the area in January after Manny's murder that happened in November 1989. He had gotten married, and he married a young woman named Gina Malone, who was a 1990 graduate. So she didn't really graduate with Mandy, but she knew of her sort of vaguely. Mm -hmm. And the two met at... When Tim went into her father's store to get a fishing license or a hunting license or something of that nature, and she was working that day, and they became an item. And they weren't planning on getting married, but shortly after Mandy's murder, he suddenly comes in and is like, we need to do this now. We need to get married and we need to move. Yeah. Mm. So... He didn't move that far away. It's not like he moved out of state, but he moved out of that particular area. And Gina and Tim had three kids together. And Tim goes on to become a delivery driver for a local bakery company called Franz, which is a Northwest thing. They deliver bread and baked goods to stores and different individuals within the Pacific Northwest. But Gina reports that Tim was very demanding and controlling, and he liked to sort of control everything that Gina did or said, what clothing she weared. He called her names, what clothing she wore, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, he called her names and never called her by her own name. Oh, no. He was always calling her bitch or cunt or whatever and, and thought it was funny. Oh, my God. He was also physically and emotionally abusive to her and... In 2010, she actually filed for a protective order against him. And Tim, she reported that Tim was constantly watching cold case files and murder movies and everything and and saying how people that got caught for murder were stupid Mm. and that didn't cover their tracks good enough. Yikes. And and that if he killed somebody, he would never get caught. That's a red flag. Yeah. So he's got Gina under his thumb, though, and despite the fact that she got a restraining order against him, she ended up letting the res- rescinding the, the restraining order and staying married with him. She also provided Tim with an alibi mm. and said that he was with her during this whole time and that he never left the house. So the investigators come to Gina's house because Tim was one of the individuals that lived near Mandy when she was murdered. Mm -hmm. And they asked Tim for a DNA sample. 
And initially they asked him if he knew about the Mandy Stavick case. And he basically looked up at the ceiling and was like, oh, I don't I don't know who that is. And just really acting weird. And they knew at that point that he was lying. Mm -hmm. Like he lived near her. There's no way he could have not heard or known about this case. And then he says, oh, yeah, 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 I, maybe I remember that. And that was the girl that, that got killed, right? You know, it just acting very right. suspicious. And then they ask him, hey, can we get your DNA? Where We have a DNA um, sweep here that we're doing, and everyone's giving DNA. Can we get yours? And he basically says, nope, I don't trust the police. I'm not giving you my DNA. You could frame me and people get framed all the time. I'm not doing this. Hmm. And his wife is like, sweetie, why, if you don't have anything to hide, just give him your sample. And he's like, fuck off. I'm never, I'm not giving you my DNA sample. Go get a court order. So at that time, the police didn't really have probable cause to be able to get a subpoena or a search warrant or anything for this guy because it's the very, very first stages and they're just doing this with everyone. They don't really have anything to link him yeah. yet. Yet. So they start following Tim Bass around and they go to where he works at Franz Bakery and speak to Kim Wagner, which is a coworker, and she knows all the routes and does the organization in the office where Tim works. So Tim is one of the delivery drivers and they initially tried to get Tim's DNA in 2013, and he's like, hell no. But by 2017, they're like, oh, no, we, we've got to get this. Mm-hmm. Like, we cannot wait on this any longer. We've got to figure this out. They go to talk to Kim, and Kim tells them that he is a delivery man in the Acme area during this, this time period now. But she's like, eh, she is very skeptical about doing anything because she's like, this is kind of this is above my pay grade. Like I'm, I'm not down for that. They asked her, can we get his route info? Can we get a cigarette butt? And she's like, yeah, no, I don't want to be involved in this unless you're bringing me a search warrant or a subpoena. I don't want to get in trouble, which is fair. I but mean, you know, right. But they don't have sufficient probable cause to get mm-hmm. one of those. And so Kim was like, okay, I'm not giving you anything, which is, you know, as you well know. Yes. But then Kim is sitting at a bar later and hears people talking about this case and discussing Tim Bass oh. and the fact that he lived near this young woman when she disappeared and was murdered. And then she starts to like, her mind is going and she's watched some CSI shows and she's, she's the little wheels are starting to crank in her mind and, and how strange it was that he actually lived near Mandy mm-hmm. and was refusing to give his DNA, even though so many other people were. Mm-hmm. So Kim was like, Okay, I'm going to start watching this guy. And she notices that everyone else at this place where they work wears uniforms, right? Everyone wears uniforms. Mm -hmm. And everyone turns them in to get washed except Tim. Hmm. He never turns his uniform in to get washed. He never throws anything away. He always empties his own trash in his truck, and he keeps things absolutely immaculate. And in addition to that, he wears gloves on all of his deliveries. I wonder... So he's... He's clearly, like keeping his shit in order because he, he he's trying to hide something yeah that's what i was gonna say like i wonder if this is something he's always done or if this is something that he just started doing and because she's now paying attention she's just noticing it for the first time you know well here's the deal he's watching all these shows right. these crime shows forensic shows and he probably knows that he's got to keep his ass yeah. clean he's got to keep his ass clean it's extremely clean so the police start following him and they're trying to collect food or cigarettes or anything but He's not leaving anything. He's like meticulous. 
And so they go back to Franz and they're hoping to convince Kim to like give up some information about his delivery route, times, etc. And she's finally like, okay, I'm down for this. Here's his route. But they can't get any DNA from him because he's not a smoker. He never throws anything away. He always takes his trash home. He wears gloves. And they're just like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. So Kim actually says to them, like, are you looking for this guy because of the Mandy Stavik case? She's asked the detective. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I can't lie to you, right? Mm -hmm. But... Kim is like this little amateur armchair detective at this point. She's been watching CSI and she's like, hey, you need like a water bottle or something, right? So you can get his DNA. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, you know, yes, but we can't ask you to do anything. But if you were to bring it to us, we could take it and test it. But we can't ask you to go get something Mm -hmm. for us. And Kim's like, fuck, yeah, I want to be involved in this. Like, I want to help find this guy. Like, I'm a mom. I just want to help this mom find out who killed her daughter. Wow. So Kim is like watching this guy like a hawk and she watches him drink out of a plastic cup at the water cooler in the office and jumps on that shit. <laughs> <laughs> he throws it in the trash can as he walks past Kim on the way to the bathroom. And as soon as he's out of earshot and eye shot, she jumps in that trash can and grabs that cup and puts it in her desk. Oh my gosh. And she's like, she's got it in the, the drawer and she immediately texts the detective and is like, I've got it. And she's like, her heart's racing because it's like, you know, who knows what this dude is capable right. of. So the, they quickly come grab the cup, they swab the drinking area, and then they conduct multiple DNA tests on it just to make sure. And bam, there's a match with the DNA on Mandy's body. Mm. So they bring Tim in and they're like, hey, you know, we're bringing you in for this case. And he's got this super flat demeanor when they are investigating him. And he's just like, I have nothing to do with this. And you have no way to prove that I was involved. I didn't even know her, blah, blah, blah. And then they say, oh, well, we've got your DNA. (laughs) There's a match. And he's like, no, you don't. Because he's, like, super sure that, like, he's never given it up. And when they asked him for it, he didn't. And he, of course, doesn't put it in his mind, the two and two together, that they could perhaps collect his DNA in other ways. Because he feels like he's been super cautious through the years. And if you look at the videos of this guy, because this was actually, like, a a TV episode. And they show him in the interrogation room being interrogated and whatnot. He looks just so ordinary. Mm. Like this simple country dude with just bad hat head and like he's wearing glasses and he's dumpy looking. And it's really funny because the newspapers, when they report on this, say <laughs> questioning the fat pudgy man. Oh. Like they, they call him the pudgy man. Yikes. Pudgy man in for question. <laughs> pudgy faced man in for questioning. Yikes. So clearly like there's no love and like no one is give, cutting this guy any slack, even though he was a suspect at that point still. But this is 2017 when Tim Bass is finally taken into custody. They grab him straight from his workplace and question him. And he's, they tell him, hey, we've got the, the DNA evidence. You're, you're caught. Okay. The police question him. And initially he's like, no intimate relations with Mandy. I didn't even kiss her. I don't know how you got my DNA. I did everything, you know, that I was supposed to do. I had nothing to do with this. I didn't know her. I'm, I'm innocent. Mm-hmm. But then once he realized they actually have his DNA, then he switches his story and is like, oh, I couldn't tell you before because I didn't trust you, but I slept with Mandy. Uh-huh. We've been, ha- we've been having a secret relationship for a long time. And the police are just looking at this guy like, what the fuck ever? Right. 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 No, no fucking way. 
He claims that his dad introduced them. His dad had a way with people. His dad started talking to them when they were riding their bikes. They were riding their mountain bikes together, the dad and the son. And they came across Mandy and started talking to her. And then eventually they hooked up. But the police are like, okay, so they're digging for details about her and he knows absolutely nothing. And they're like, well, did she ever write you a letter? Did she ever call you? And he's like, no, basically we just hooked up when she was at home. And on this day, it was a booty call. Uh. So basically he's saying that she snuck away from everyone else in private and in secret and had a booty call with this gross dude who was a weird, creepy, awkward next door neighbor. I'm going to say unlikely. Yeah. So, and everyone that knew her was like, this is complete bullshit. She was way out of his league. <laughs> if he had hooked up with her, he would have told everyone there's yeah. no fucking way this, this is complete bullshit. And the only one that could back up this dude's story is his dad. And his dad was dead. Oh, how convenient. So the police are like, okay, fuck that. We're filing charges. They arrest this guy December 12th, 2017. In the meantime, Kim is getting the credit because she's been brave enough to go grab that cup and help solve this case. She actually meets with Mary and they hug and and congratulate each other. And it's kind of a sweet thing because it's like, you know, she's she just wanted to help. Right. She wasn't trying to be she didn't want recognition. But eventually Mary found her and was like, I just want to thank her for helping solve this case. But. Gina is interviewed during the trial, as well as Tom, Tim's younger brother. Police basically don't believe a damn thing about Tim's story. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody else does either. Yeah. But Gina had given him an alibi and says she went to his house after school and that she saw him the entire time and that she also saw Mandy running and spent the rest of the afternoon with Tim and he couldn't have done anything because he was never gone from her. Mm-hmm. The police theory is that Mandy set out on her five-mile ride in this typical fashion that she did and had been many, many, many times and that in a secluded wooded area about a quarter of a mile from her house, Tim was waiting. Oh, no. And that he pulled her into the car when she reached that area and took her about six miles south to an isolated location where he raped her. She tried to run away in her shoes and socks without her clothes, but he hit her over the head and then threw her into the river. He claims over and over and over again, I didn't do it just because there's DNA on the body doesn't mean I did it. No one ever saw her with, you know, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Just because I fucked her doesn't mean that I had anything to do with this. And no one believes him there either. He's complete douchebag sleaze. Everybody kept saying we didn't, we never, Tim wasn't part of our group. He, she never knew him. She never hung out with him. She never spoke to him. There's no fucking way she would sleep with him. Then... His brother Tom testifies that Tim asked him to lie and say that he slept with Mandy too. Oh, uh, because he wanted to make her look promiscuous and discredit fuck her. Fuck you. Which is such a douchebag, sleazy thing to do. And unfortunately, it's one of those tactics and tricks that a lot of prosecutors yep. throughout the years have done to try to discredit victims. And it's fucking disgusting. Yep. And you hear the attorney talking about this case, and he's like, you know, my client may be this, but just because there's DNA on the body, just because he had sex with this girl, doesn't mean that he killed her, and there's absolutely nothing to prove that he killed her, and blah, 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 and on and on and on, and you just want to just punch Mm -hmm. him in the face. Then 
The ex-wife testifies. Dun, dun, dun. She had filed for divorce at the start of all of this, and she came forward and admitted that the alibi that she gave for Tim was false. It's funny how divorce will kind of make you change your tune like that, isn't it? Yeah. So evidently, I felt really bad for this girl as well, though, because it was clear that she had been oh, abused ex- horribly by this man and that it took her feeling safe and secure and away from him for her to feel like she could finally tell the truth. I think he was threatening her. Oh, I'm sure she I'm and sure it was, basically yeah. made her believe that if she told the truth that he would kill her too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the defense is up and down. Oh, no, no, this doesn't have anything to do with it and you know, just because we had sexual uh, consensual sexual relationship doesn't mean it's sexual assault and the real killer's still out there. Mm. And don't they always fucking say that? OJ did. <laughs> why are you wasting time with me? Mm-hmm. You should be out there looking for the real killer. Yeah. And everyone is like, this is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous BS. I mean, how the fuck often does that happen? Where they grab the wrong person and the real killer's actually still out there, even though they found your DNA all over her freaking body. I mean, that's the thing. Like, And you have no alibi. It does happen that innocent people get convicted. It does, that does happen. But... That is not what happened in this case, clearly. Right. And there's no fucking way Mandy snuck out of the house for a sexual tryst with this awkward, weird, gross dude. Like a long-term affair that she was keeping secret. No. Yeah. No fucking way. And there was absolutely no evidence. There would have been something. Yeah. There would have been a phone call. There would have been a letter. Mm -hmm. There would have been something if she was doing something like that. And that's just not the kind of girl that she was anyway. So I'm looking at the, the reports from this, and you see Steve Rabel. It's one of the original Northwest reporters that I used to watch when I was a kid growing up, and he reported on this case and the trial. The jury reads the verdict and announces that this douchebag is guilty of first-degree murder, and he is sentenced to 27 years in prison. He reads this statement, which I'm going to play oh boy. for the listening audience because it's just so vile. But he's like, oh, I'm 100% innocent and I have nothing to do with this. And I'm just having a really hard time with this. Oh, I'm sorry for you. Right. And you just want to punch him in the face. He's so gross. I would first like to say that I'm 100% innocent. Those were some of the first words we've ever heard Timothy Bass speak. I wish no ill will towards anyone here. Not even today. I am having a hard time with this. Anyway, um, there is a memorial scholarship in Mandy's name. And a lot of the people in this particular case are very relieved that they got this guy and they put him in jail. It took them nearly 30 years to find this, which is to find this killer, which is three years less than or three years more than Tim's Bass's sentence. Mm, Wow. And his legal team says they plan to appeal, which is par for the course. course. They yeah. always say crap like that. Wow. Gross, gross, gross. But I'm glad they found this guy. And it's just, it's something that you would never suspect when you hear a case like this, that there'd be some creepy neighbor who was like, basically sounds like he was stalking her and had been watching her for a long period of time mm-hmm. and waiting for the opportune moment to grab her and abuse her and kill her. I mean, I don't know that he necessarily planned to kill her, but he definitely planned to rape her. Right. And I hope that his ex-wife, and you said they had a couple kids, right? 
Yeah, I hope that his ex-wife and kids are in a much better place now, that they don't have to live under his abuse, because it sounds like he was clearly very abusive to definitely his ex-wife and I would assume his kids, too, you know? Yeah, just terrible. Awful, awful, awful. But I'm glad that there was closure in this case after 30 years. I mean, better late than never. Absolutely. Her mother, I think her mother's in her 80s now. And she just was like such a trooper. She got up. She testified in the trial. She stood when she needed to stand, even though she uses a cane now. And she's looking a little bit more frail. But bless her heart, she was there for the whole thing and was able to get a little bit of closure in this case, even though she never received any for her son that was killed. So Yeah, gosh. That's tragic. Very interesting. Right. Um, Let's talk about some emails. Yeah, let's do it. Read, Read a couple emails. Um, I got one a few days ago that says, subject line, we love your podcast, or I love your podcast. Hi, Sarah. I just wanted to send an email your way and let you know how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. You and Darcy really seem to have a depth of intelligence and uniqueness that is absent in many of your competitors. Oh. The sound quality is also starting to sound much better. Yay, we're working on it. (laughs) Can you pass along a way for listeners like me to contribute to your show? I would love to donate to help you ladies continue to get better and be better. Much love, Robert. Thanks, Robert. Right? So we, are, we will be coming up with our Patreon stuff soon, we promise. There will be ways that you can help the podcast in that way if you so choose. That it will never be compulsory. We will never demand or beg people to donate to that. But we do realize that that's how a lot of podcasters make a living. And that is how many of them are able to contribute such amazing content and such high quality content is because people support them and allow them to buy better equipment to make better podcasts. And that is our goal and our hope. We're not trying to be multimillionaires off this. We just want to make a good high quality podcast for our listeners. And get the word out. Maybe solve some crimes. Yeah. That would be freaking amazing. That would be awesome. Okay. Next email. This is a special request email. It says, hi, BFD crew. My hubby and I have listened to quite a few of your podcasts and we love it so far. Any plans to feature some more local San Diego cases? We are transplants here from Michigan and we'd love to hear some local true crime stories. Allie and Rich. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I actually found a couple of good San Diego cases that I have on my list to do. Awesome. Uh, I definitely love doing the local stuff. We really, really enjoyed doing the Spreckles Mansion yeah. case, which was a Coronado case that, that came out not too long ago. You can always go check that episode out if you have not listened to it yet. But absolutely, I love San Diego cases. Yep. And one more email. This one says, great job, guys. Hey, ladies, I'm listening to your podcast and loving it. I have binge listened for the last week, and I just had to write and tell you how impressed I am. There are definitely a ton of true crime podcasts out there, and you two stand out from the competition for your intelligence and great conversation. Kudos for creating an excellent podcast in a world of mediocre ones. Stephanie. Oh, thanks, Stephanie. Awesome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for your feedback. We definitely aim to please. We haven't really had much negative feedback yet. That is not to say that there's nothing bad about our podcast, but we definitely love it when listeners keep it positive and offer some interesting feedback and good tips and and requests for things that they want to hear on the show. That always makes us happy. Yeah, definitely send in like topic requests like the we we can do definitely can definitely do more San Diego stuff. That would be that's that's good. I like that. 
Yeah. Tell us about stuff you want to hear. Like we have been really delving into some of the more unique cases and hoping to bring out content that has not been covered extensively by a shit ton of other podcasts, because we feel like that makes a lot of stuff more interesting. Mm -hmm. I know personally, when I hear cases that I've never heard about or reported on before, I get really like fired up. Yeah. I don't know if that's the same way for you. But yeah, it is. Great. And I, I I like doing ones that we can kind of bring attention to either because they don't get much coverage, you know, because of the, po- you know, of the victim population or whatever. Or if it's just, you know, like a small town, you know, case that hasn't been getting a lot of attention. Um so I just, I, I like bringing attention to those. And if it's unsolved, certainly we want to, you know, draw attention to that. And, and maybe we can get some information and get some, some, you know, some closure for these families and get some solves, some solved cases. That would, that's awesome. Yeah, I think I definitely feel a sense of triumph when I look at these cold cases that were finally solved after 30 years. I just feel like, hell yeah, Mm -hmm. like I want to just give somebody a huge high five. I know. It's got to feel good. Like when those, especially like when you talk about like in this, the case tonight, this was a murder in 1989 and they had the wherewithal and the foresight to collect DNA. You know, like that's so fortuitous that they had just come back from FBI training and they just learned about this new technique and they knew that they needed to collect it and how much they needed to collect. And then, you know, doing the DNA sweep with the new detective, like it's just it's so impressive that they can think that far ahead like that. It's it's awesome. And this is a small town. This is like one of the smallest little areas in Washington state. So, like, you know that there have been literally thousands of cases where people weren't this lucky, where they weren't lucky enough to preserve that evidence, where they didn't have the knowledge and and their cases have still not been solved. So it's a very fortuitous thing that they were some one or two guys were on their shit enough to be able to help. And and I I presume that the town has a good bit of uh, industrial income, you know, given that they are frequently making anvils and exploding bombs and things like that for Wile E. Coyote. So, (laughs) (laughs) right. (laughs) It seems like they probably have a good industry and economy. So, you know, maybe they have better resources. Yeah. Well, this was an interesting case as well. I don't know about yourself, but I love looking back through the old film footage of 90s, 80s uh, and 90s hair. I can and see the shoulder pads. And, <laughs> and clothing and whatnot and the way people talk yeah. and then seeing these people because they showed the interviews of some of these people involved in this case when they were teenagers when the case actually happened. And then they showed them that 30 years later, like her boyfriend wow. from high school and like her best friend and like all these people. And you see the changes, the differences between these people then and now. And it's just... It blows you away. Yep. So interesting. Super, super interesting. Anyway, uh, this is the point in the podcast where we say so long for a well. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, etc., you want to tell us about an interesting case that needs to be reported on, shoot us an email. We're at the BFD Podcast at gmail.com. Social media? We are at the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So go give us a follow. We will follow back. Shoot us a message. We'll definitely, we like interacting there, so. We post a lot of pictures, as much as we can, of these cases. Mm-hmm. We, I try to find ones that are a little bit different that I haven't seen before, that are a little unique, and that aren't blasted on every social media website about particular cases, right. so. That's a passion of mine. But please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>